All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thanks again once more for coming out on this beautiful, wow, beautiful, beautiful. We needed that sunshine, I think. I think everybody needed that. Um, a couple of quick announcements. One, the life philosophical class is sold out. So first, thanks to everybody who signed up from all over the world, actually. So that's very uh, amazing. Um, and two, if someone was interested in signing up, um, you know, email me, contact me on the website, and I can put you on a waiting list, or we'll see what happens. So, but right now, all sold out, which is kind of incredible. And two, coming up March 7th and 9th, I'm doing an evening of uh, North Indian classical music, the Hindustani tradition of Indian classical music. Um, on the 7th, we'll be in Seattle, well, Bellevue, actually, at the Baha'i Center. And um, on uh, Monday the 9th, we'll be at Centrum at the Wheeler Theater. We're partnering with Centrum and the Seattle Tabla Institute. And this is really a remarkable program um, put together by Centrum and the Seattle Tabla Institute with Srivani uh, Jade and Tavari and Ravi Albright. These are world-class musicians, unbelievable. And so the, uh, this evening, we're going to be able to explore, experience here uh, this great world tradition that I think is too little known about. And so it'll be a chance to both understand it, we'll talk about it, we'll do some exercises, interactive, and then to hear what we've learned in action as we listen to what are truly are just amazing world-class musicians that, I mean, Srivani right now is touring India and she's not playing towns the size of Port Townsend. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rare opportunity. So yeah, check that out. It, it'll be the seventh, we'll be in um, Bellevue at the Baha'i Center and that information is on the Seattle Tabla Institute's website. And then on uh, March 9th here at the Wheeler Theater, and there are a few after the event, uh, Rob Centrum has organized a dinner where you actually all go out and you can sit with the musicians and talk to them. And so there's a few of those left as well. And you can go to the Centrum website and check that all out. But I think uh, it's, uh, I don't know, 6.30ish? 5.30 then. Whatever it says, 5.30. Thank you. Yes. Uh, forced busing. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> no. I'm a I'm a huge uh, long-term fan of Indian classical music uh, in general, and I was introduced to, by, to by Ustad Ali Akbar Khan, which is a good way to be introduced to it, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, I'm going to talk about that a little bit in the evening, and and that sort of my goal is as a bridge between the the sort of two worlds. Um, so yeah, it's really going to be spectacular, and we're with uh, KCTS has been part of this and Crosscut, and you know it's going to be a real uh, uh, amazing couple of evenings. Um, right. So uh, tonight, Carl Jaspers. Now, Carl Jaspers is proof, in case you needed it, that history is not entirely just. You may have had this suspicion before. But uh, if, if you weren't sure about that, Carl Jaspers demonstrates this because probably most people, unless you're really dedicated to philosophy, have not heard of Carl Jaspers or little heard, maybe heard rumor that he existed or something. Um, but almost everybody who's even vaguely interested in philosophy has heard of Heidegger. Now, Heidegger wrote obscure, very hard to read, famously thick, famously ponderous works. Um, always hard to know what he was talking about, a very abstract much of the time, um, and was also a third-rate human being and a virulent Nazi. Jaspers, his exact contemporary, um, was a wonderful, amazing, decent human being who spent his life trying to be a good human being. In fact, one of his uh, biographies is called Explorations in Truth. Uh, and it's like this, you know, he really was trying to find out, you know, how to live a good and decent life. Anti-Nazi, um, wife was Jewish, so we'll talk about this. And his writing is clear, succinct, beautiful, direct. Whether you agree with him or not, it's not important, right? It's, it's that he was trying to communicate as clearly and directly as possible. So, of course, everybody knows Heidegger and no one knows Jaspers, right? It's just, it's just this incredible, right? That's, that's history for you. So, uh, born uh, 1883, died 1969. 
So if you have even a passing familiarity with German history, you go, ooh, right? That's a rough, that's a rough couple of years there in Germany, you know? It's, it's like, oh, yeah, sorry about that, Carl. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be a tough bit of sledding for him. Uh, it was particularly difficult for Jaspers in some ways because his entire life he was anti-authoritarian. Um, and, and if you want to be anti-authoritarian, at least you have clarity in Germany during these years because you know what you're against. Uh, and this start, he was raised, his parents were very progressive. Uh, they were, they were well-ish, off, moderately upper class, but they really believed in giving him a fair bit of latitude. They were very interested in the arts, also nature. He spent a lot of time out in nature when he was young. Um, but he was at the standard German, you know, if you were the upper middle class children, you went to the gymnasium. And the one that he went to, had the, the school headmaster says, we're going to segregate everybody into three groups. And, you know, the top group, I forget what they were called, but it was all the sons of the wealthy. And, and, and Jaspers belonged to that group. And then there was the sons of, and it's all sons, by the way, sons of the sort of working middle class and it was the sons of the upper lower class that had somehow managed to get their children into school. And Jaspers would have nothing to do with this. He said, I, I don't want to join any of these groups. And they're like, no, you have to, you're not allowed to not join one of these groups. And so he, he spent like a whole lot of time arguing, convincing, and making sure that he did not have to be a member of one of those groups. And eventually the headmaster made him a group of one. <laughs> But for a long time, the headmaster said, well, none of the other groups are allowed to socialize with you. And so he really was isolated in that sense. But it was a big challenge to the whole structure of the school. And he did this essentially his whole life. And it's not like he went out. He wasn't like a rabble rouser or he didn't not. It's not. It's clear that he wasn't purposely trying to cause trouble, but he just found it unacceptable to, to have to give in to these sorts of structures that were just trying to repress people and destroy them. And so he goes through school, uh, does, does well, but he has a breathing condition. And they thought he had tuberculosis. And so he spent his whole life thinking he was about to die. He lived to be 86. But, but particularly in his early days, he really thought he was about to die. And then right after he graduates, he gets diagnosed that, no, you have this sort of long-running lung infection. So you actually have a chance of living. And it was like a revelation, right? You're still sickly, still worried about his health, but TB was essentially a death sentence at the time. And so once it wasn't TB, at least he had a chance to live. But he was so sickly um, and had such problems breathing that when he got married and he fell in love uh, with a woman who was his wife, they were great, great marriage, great partners for whatever, 60 years, um, bless you. And, um, but her parents, who were prominent Jewish family, uh, said, our daughter cannot marry you unless your parents agree to make her your inheritor because they were so worried he was going to die. They're like, Look, she'll just be a destitute widow. Uh, and they was afraid that his family would just kick her out because she was Jewish and, you know, he had died, and so we're not responsible for her. So they're like, look, if you want to marry our daughter, okay, but you have to sign a will that signs everything over to her. So they actually did that, and then the wedding went forward. So, again, not, he wasn't looking for trouble, but it turns out that marrying a prominent Jewish daughter in, you know, 19, I think, 16, 14, right around in there, was a good way to get trouble. Right. You know, it's it's it was it was it was not uh, it was it, it was going to create problems for him. And it, of course, ended up creating problems for him. But he initially starts out as a, uh, well, first a lawyer he went to law school and that lasted for about one minute. Uh, and it's, it's shocking how many philosophers start with law. And what's clear is they're getting their education. They're really good at it. And culture and parents and everything go, oh, if you're smart and you're doing well in school, go into law. And they go, yeah, okay. And they arrive in law and they're like, no. It's, Goethe 
got his law degree. I mean, it's just crazy to think about him in law school, right? But there he was. Um, you know, so, so he starts in law, and he's like, no, 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 no. And so then he switches over to medicine because there's a family friend who was a doctor, and he was very inspired by this guy and all the help that he had received. And so he says, I want to go to medicine. So he starts going to medicine. He actually got his medical degree, but in the process, he basically switched to psychiatry, which was then a part of, of course, medicine, and heavily influenced by Freud and Freudian ideas and the, you know, the work that's going on in Germany, trying to treat the mentally ill. And so he starts, gets going into psychology, and then sort of ends up being a philosopher kind of by accident. His big book for his psychiatric PhD turned out to be a big work of phenomenological philosophy. This is what it really was. And so they sort of said, all right, we'll give you a degree in that because it's just brilliant. You're brilliant. Um, and so great. Well, how would you like to be on the philosophy faculty? How about that? And he's like, yes, here I go. But he never set out to be a philosopher. Read philosophy, was fascinated by philosophy, always interested in philosophical problems. Um, but it wasn't like a goal. It was something that he sort of grew into and that his ambitions and interests just took him there. And so he arrives at Heidelberg where he more or less stays for the rest of his life. Um, and if you, so the first quote there lets you uh, recognize this about him. My path was not the normal one of professors of philosophy. I did not intend to become a doctor of philosophy by just studying philosophy. I am, in fact, a doctor of medicine. Nor did I by any means intend originally to qualify for a professorship by dissertation in philosophy. To decide to become a philosopher seemed as foolish to me as to decide to become a poet. Since my school days, however, I was guided by philosophical questions. Philosophy seemed to me, to be, to me the supreme, even the sole, concern of man. Yet a certain awe kept me from making it my profession. I think this is key. He, he, his interests were always there. If you look at his earlier psychological writings, that these are supposedly technical, professional, his, it's so philosophically bound. He talks a lot about what the patient can communicate to the doctor and what a doctor can actually know about a patient. That's one of his key questions. Right? We, you know, it's always like, oh, well, the patient's doctor asks what about the patient, what the patient knows about himself, and then the doctor thinks about this, and then communicates back and forth. And Jaspers was like, yeah, I don't know how well that's working. <laughs> how much knowledge about your interior of yourself and your experience of the world can you communicate to an outside party? And how much can a doctor take in and really understand and then communicate back to you? He thought that was a very limited amount. And he thought doctors and psychiatrists in particular were well to keep in mind those limitations. So even his earliest works in medicine and psychiatry were heavily leaning towards these sorts of fundamental philosophical questions. Um, and central to his entire project, therefore, because it comes from this sort of medical helping people notion, he said, look, the, the core issue, the key of this is dignity of the human individual. He was big on this. He was completely anti-system. He says, what you get when you get a system is you get not individual dignity because the individual is forced to conform to whatever the parameters of the system are. And so we need systems, we need to live in constructs, but philosophical systems have done all the thinkings for you and you do the truth. Here it is, here's the truth, you just accept it and you understand why you accept it. And he's like, no, everybody has to derive the truths for themselves, through themselves, to maintain their individual dignity. Um, and, and this is one of the, another great quote from him along these lines is, philosophical thought must always spring from free creation. Every man must accomplish it for himself. So this is, this is the, this is the, antithesis of saying, well, here's this big, heavy book of philosophy. Read it, memorize it, write about it, understand it, prove that you know it. Now you've got philosophy. He's like, no, no, no. You have to do it for yourself from free, from free creation of your own mind. A marvelous indication of man's innate disposition to philosophy is to be found in the questions asked by children. A child cries out in wonderment, I keep trying to think I am somebody else, but I'm always myself. Right? He says, you know, and this is a great, again, I think it's a, it's a true observation. You know, as, a, as children, even as adults, but particularly as kids, we, we like to play 
in our minds and imagine that we're somebody else doing something else, living another life. And then there's always that problem, though, that you end up being yourself. Right? Isn't that, I mean, this is that crazy problem of, of you live in your imagination for a while and then you come back to yourself. And for, for Jaspers, this is not like kids messing around and just being crazy. Like, no, there's the, there it is. You've experienced this. Why? How is it that I always end up, no matter how hard I try, being back here with me? Right? That, that fundamental, and what is it, the self that stays? I mean, because it's so, it's this remarkably difficult to pin down sense, and yet it is the sense we have that we are coherent through time. We might be wrong about that, but it's clearly a powerful sense we have that our individual selves are, in fact, this continuously living thing. But what is it, and why? And why can't we just chuck it out and get a new self? Right? People are always talk about, oh, I want to remake my identity. And I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, you can to a certain extent. It's clear that we're malleable. But there's still also that notion that there is this part of us that seems contiguous, that seems to, to live from we're 9 to 12 to 18 to 30 to 90. It just, uh, it just, there seems to be this core, right? People are recognizable when you haven't seen them for a huge amount of time, both physically, but I often think it's just the person themselves. Like, oh, I know this person. Even though I haven't seen them for 20, 30 years, I can go, yes, I, it, there is some sort of, something there that can be recognized. And so he, he looks at that and he says, yeah, these are the kinds of questions we want to ask. Um, and when he asked these questions, and this is a great thing about reading uh, Jaspers, and he, and he wrote short, pithy books and thicker, more difficult-to-read books, but he's always very direct. And his shorter, pithier books are, are, are very accessible, and I, I recommend them, like Way to Wisdom, these sorts of things. He has a whole history of the uh, series on philosophers. Um, but, but, you know, he's, it's always clear, and he will not back away from a problem, no matter how terrifying or how problematic. For instance, so at the end of the war, um, he was listed as one of the good people by the Allies. So like, okay, we want to reopen the universities. Jaspers, get Jaspers. He's reliable. He's good. He was anti-Nazi. Let's put him in charge of, of reopening the universities or University of Heidelberg. Um, and so they go and get him. And say, okay, you know, give a speech or something. And so right after the war is just over, he stands up and says, well, you know, we're all here because when our friends and neighbors and our Jewish shopkeepers were being killed, we didn't go out and fight to the death for them. So there you go. <laughs> and you're like, wow, right out the gates. Right? He's not, and he says that he's not saying that makes us wrong. This is the thing. That may have been the right mode. It may have been pointless to do that, but we have to acknowledge that's why we're here. Right? We're alive because we didn't die. And the reason we didn't die is because we didn't go out there and try to do something. So let's not be confused. So he, he had this just willingness to just face things. And what he found over and over again is an unwillingness by just about everybody around him to do this. He's a fundamental cowardice and he says, so, you know, he says, um, whenever you look at something, it, it seems simple, but it's always problematic. And so you have this quote from The Way to Wisdom that talks about this. is thus every object, every thought, content stands in a twofold dichotomy. First, in reference to me, the thinking subject, and secondly, in reference to other objects. As thought content, it can never be everything, never the whole being, never being itself. Whatever is thought must break out of the comprehensive. And so people want to see the totality of the universe, grasping anybody who's writing against Hegel here, right? You're going you're gonna to have these totality experiences. You're going to uni be unified with the universe. You know, the truth will descend on you. And he's like, no, the problem is, anytime you think anything, you're segregating it off from the whole, from the totality. This is what thinking is. And you're separating it off from you. So you've created two different divisions. You said, I'm not a chair, and the chair is not the podium. And he said, so, so much for totality. 
right? He says, so just the process of trying to think breaks you out of this Hegelian, like, universal whole. But it wasn't just Hegelian. He thought Hegel was just the perfect example of all these attempts to come up with a perfect, unified system of absolute truth in which we could lose our consciousness, right? Transcend our, 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 our space. And so he says, if you just stop and think, even about the most basic aspects of thinking, what you realize is a, it's a wreck, right? That my being is in many ways derived by not being a bunch of other things. And so that desire for unity and sort of immersion is, is essentially impossible in thinking. As long as you're thinking. He says when you stop thinking, then you can do it, but we don't want to stop thinking. This is, this is one of the core problems. Um, and so he, he, he wrote his three sort of magnum opus, his three volumes, in which he explores this basic concept. And, he's, and, and each one is a way of thinking about the world and the problems and limitations of each of them. And the first one is when we think about objective world outside. And this is the world that science speaks to. He says, one, science is really great at doing that, giving us the objective meaning of the world outside. The problem is now we have a lot of knowledge about the world outside and almost no knowledge about the world inside, right? Which is really hard. And it turns out that what we're mostly interested in is how our world inside correlates with that world outside. He says, this is essentially not a scientific subject because people are so crazy, right? I mean, that. Uh, you know, that, that we're how, you know, we can say something weighs five pounds, but uh, to somebody this weighs a lot, and to somebody else that weighs a little bit. If there's 12 steps of stairs, bless you, if there's 12 stair steps that I have to go up, if I'm good, I can just walk right up. But if I have a walker or a leg injury or, or had knee surgery, that's an entirely different set of 12 steps, right? They've, they aren't the same. I mean, they are the same, right? We can measure them, the height, the width, everything, but they aren't the same. Our experience of them is completely different. And so we, but we, that's how we have to conceptualize the world. And so measuring, he's not anti-science, in fact, he's very pro-science, medical background, but he's very cognizant of the limits of this kind of thing. And then the second book is on the internal, external, the human, grossly oversimplifying, of course, because you're all thick tomes. And then the third book, which I always find perhaps the most fascinating, is he's, he's interested in transcendence. Because he says it's clear, what we, we might call it, I mean, it's hard to translate the words, of course, because we might call it the ineffable. He says we do have these experience, or experiences that sort of are beyond our capacity to articulate them in language or clear thinking. And he says, so, but you can't say they don't exist because we so clearly have them. And so he spends a lot of time thinking about how we relate to these kinds of experiences, the kinds of encounters you can have with music, where he says these are where a lot of religious ideas come from, or this is where art comes from, these sorts of experiences that you can't articulate, but you can experience them. And so what do you do with that? So he's got a whole big fat volume on thinking about that. But what each of these volumes tries to do is put the person, the individual person, into a place where they're interacting with the world. And then how do you think about that? Particularly, how do you think about that and maintain the dignity of the human being? He's all, there's always a core of his drive. He says, you, the, the individual, coherent, dignified person. Right? And anytime, like if science says, oh, we know everything about a people, people are just mechanistic, he's like, A, that's not true. B, that's demeaning to man. He would rather get rid of science than get rid of the human as not a mechanism. He thinks the dignity of man is more important than anything. And he, and through his whole career, and you can see this, again, another quote here, uh, the independence of man is rejected by all totalitarianism, by the totalitarian religion, which claims exclusive truth, as well as by the totalitarian, totalitarian state, 
which, melting down all humanity into material for its edifice of power, leaves no room for individuality and even controls leisure activities in accordance with an ideological line. Today, independence seems to be silently disappearing beneath the inundation of life by the typical, the habitual, the unquestioned commonplace. But to philosophize is to, to fight for our inner independence under all conditions. Right? The, the, the freedom to think inside in your own way, to be in your own way, to not be forced to be habituated into patterns of behavior that don't originate from you. So this is philosophy. That's, that to him, this is the core of it. And the problem with all kinds of totalitarianism, which he lived with a lot, uh, is that's what it can't have. It has to strip away your individuality. It has to make everybody into groups. The groups aren't individuals, and then nobody cares what happens to groups. It's Stalin's brilliant quip that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths are, is a statistic. Right? We, we, we can't, right? We can care about one individual person that we know and can understand. A million people is just a number. Makes no difference. And so, that the, the Jaspers is like trying to make a million individuals. How do you come up with a system and a philosophy that allows a million individuals to come up to the million answers? And so a great example of this, he mentions God there. He, he was sort of religious, but again, like Kant, he was religious in a way that nobody found convincing. Right? Nobody understood what he meant by being religious. He's like, well, we th everybody thought that he was on their side, and then when they, he would write something or they would write something that included him, and he'd be like, no, 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 don't count me in that. No, 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 not having it. But, but what he said is like, look, you can't believe in, in one religion because there's so many religions. And to believe that you have the right religion would just be mental totalitarian. Um, you also can't, he says, Kant conclusively proves that you can't prove there is a God, and he also conclusively proves that you can't prove there's not a God. And so the question then becomes, is how someone understands themselves in relationship to the question. So it's how do you place yourself in relationship to the question of whether or not you believe in something that can't be demonstrated in any direction. See, that's not that helpful, right? I mean, on one hand, it's not that helpful uh, because it just opposes an unanswered question as a relation to your thinking that is the core of your ideal. And he says, what we always want to do is we want an answer. We want a question, and then we want an answer. And often on questions like this that cannot be known, he felt that was, again, conclusively proven by Kant, he says, then, then what you've done is you've simply stopped thinking about it. And when you stop thinking about it, you've closed off the question. When you stop questioning, you're not thinking, and some of your dignity has just been taken away, in this case, by you. He doesn't want you to lose any of your dignity. He wants you to keep it open and questioning and developing. He also said, and in doing that, what you're creating is a belief that you work with. And that working with the belief, the doing of it, is what gives you the power of, 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 of faith, essentially. Because it can't ever be proven. It's just a question of faith, one way or the other, or suspended. Um, which is a crazy answer on one hand, but on the other hand, it does provide this very different view. And so you know, people thought, oh, well, he's just sort of a conservative Protestant thinker, and then that didn't pan out at all. When he just said, "Look, there's you know, there's all kinds of gods potentially. I can, you can't say any are right or wrong." It's like, "Oh, okay." And then these very liberal theologians who said, "Well, let's go through the Bible and find out, get rid of all the religious stuff, and just find the kind of truths from philosophy." And he said, "A, this is wrong because you're trying to find truths and foist them off on people. B, this is wrong because there's a lot of sort of." mythological and uh, representative ideas in there that get stripped away when you just try to talk about, you know, what can we prove archaeologically? It's like, what's provable archaeologically is probably the least important thing about what's in there. So as you think about something like the myth of Adam and Eve, 
says, of course it's not true, but there's something that resonates there. There's a reason the story has survived for thousands and thousands of years. And if you, lose, if you strip that resonance from people, he thought that this was sort of a sort of a hieroglyphic of the transcendent that you're losing. Not the story, but the resonance of the story. The fact that it speaks to us in some way. He says, if you strip that out, you're left with nothing. You'll have, it's, 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 it's terrible, don't do that. And people didn't know what to do, They're like, what are you talking about? Either you believe in something or you don't. It's like, well, I believe that you should have a sense of the way you believe and then question that continuously as a form of belief. And it's like, ooh, that's tough. That's tough. But it's certainly not totalitarian. I'll give him that. Um, and in, in this line, this is, he, he, he's great because he, he liked Kant, but he saw the limitations of Kant. He understood Hegel because he's writing the Hegelian educational tradition. And he says, look, Hegel wanted to create this totalizing system, and that just isn't work anymore. We've gone beyond that. We're not going to fall for the totalizing system anymore. Um, and he says, so philosophy after Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, who he groups together, we'll talk about this, can no longer bring its thoughts into a single complete system to be brought out as a pre presentation derived from its principles. It is a question of letting those principles themselves become effective. The problem for us is to philosophize without being exceptions, but with our eyes on the exception. So what does that mean? So he sees philosoph uh, philosophy, he sees Kierkegaard and Nietzsche as having looked at the Hegelian totalizing systems, not just Hegel's, but Hegel was just the big guy at the time, and he says their radical questioning made that impossible. You just can't do that anymore. He says any attempt to do that is just dishonest. Because he says if you read Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, who are very different, he says, but at their core, they looked at it and they just questioned it to death. They were willing to ask every question, and when you do that, then you're in trouble. Because what you want to do when you have a system is you say, okay, give me the following. And it, in every system starts with some things that are given. Well, let's just assume this, and we'll assume that, and you assume that, and then we can drive these things. What Nietzsche and Kierkegaard did is they said, whatever you say, give me, they're going to say no. Well, how about this? They're going to say no. Uh, the, the example I like, although it's not Kierkegaard or Nietzsche, is uh, Bertrand Russell was arguing, arguing with Wittgenstein one time. And Bertrand Russell said, there is not a rhinoceros in this room. And Wittgenstein said, I'm unwilling to give that to you. <laughs> right? I'm not going to. And it, just, it just drove Russell mad because Wittgenstein would not, there we all will give you no premises. You come up with a premise, I will not accept it. And so this is what uh, Jaspers felt, I think, pretty much accurately Nietzsche and Kierkegaard had done in their very different ways. Is they said, we're going to underline all premises. Okay, so what do you do? Well, he says, look, it's not about deriving, you know, these principles. It's a question of letting those principles themselves become effective. It's about living those principles. But notice this is very different from saying, oh, there's an abstract system and some abstract concepts and there's some proofs that we can derive from that. That's all out there and doesn't have a lot to do with me. Jaspers continually wanted to have it a lot to do with you. The truth of something he felt was derived from you're living it in action. Try that principle out. See if it works. If it does, sort of write it down in pencil, right? That, oh, this seems like a reasonable principle. It seems to be working for me, but be prepared to have an eraser, right? So it could be true, might be true. Let's find out. How do you find out? You put it in action. You want to see the principle work. Just accepting external ideas is, one, mental slavery, uh, and two, just, uh, it just it stops philosophy. It's not the beginning of philosophy, he felt. He felt it was the end of philosophy. Because once you've accepted those, well, now we're not thinking again. Um, but this, of course, opens you up to constant revision and constant questioning and constant revisiting, which is what he thought was great and what everybody else was trying to avoid, right? It's like, this is not what we're after. We don't want to continually be forced to try and think about all this stuff. 
And he thought, no, 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 that's exactly what we want to do, isn't it? It's like what Jaspers wanted to do, I think, would be the, uh, the highlight there. Um, and so he, he, he kept working in this vein. Uh, and another quote here from General uh, Psychopathology, which shows that, again, he, he shied away from nothing. He said, we cannot avoid conflict. Conflict with society, other individuals, and with oneself. Conflicts may be the source of defeat, loss of life, and limitation of our potentiality, but they may also lead to greater depth of living and the birth of more far-reaching unities, which flourish in the tensions that engender them. So notion, oh, if you have conflict, let's get rid of it. He's like, mm, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's a good conflict. But in any case, we're going to have conflict. So the question is not get rid of conflict, don't have conflict. It says, is this a generative conflict? How is this conflict working for us? Is it a conflict worth having? This is, this, I, you see these bumper stickers in the most extreme version that say, I'm already against the next war. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm, it depends on what the next war is. Probably, but maybe not. I'm not against all conflict. That's just crazy. It's, 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 it, again, and it's also the assumption of, I, now I don't have to think about it. Now I don't, it's all bad, it's always wrong, it's always, ah, yeah, sure, that's clarifying but also gross oversimplification and suggest that you've never read one page of world history, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just like there are sometimes it's really good to fight because uh, bad shit happens if you don't, um, you know, and, and which is, by the way, not incidental. He thought that reading history was the great method of thinking. He said, if you read history, you see the greatness and the folly of man, and that is us. We are they. And so if you want to know about yourself and know about your world, read history. Because you see greatness and you see greatness crushed. You see folly and you see remarkable achievements. Um, and, that's, and, and to try and say, well, this is good and that's bad, he says, that's just, you know, you're now you're not, you're, you've stopped thinking again. And it seems easier, right, at a remove of a thousand years to look at the Roman Empire but if we lived in the Roman Empire, you just can't imagine what the news would be, right? It would be, be I, think, I don't think we could tolerate it, you know? So it's, it's very different. And so it's like to have that distance and that perspective and to be able to review the possibilities of mankind, which is to say the possibilities of ourselves, is extraordinary. And so his early career, because he starts medical, psychological, um, he had a very heavy emphasis on the internal and on the individual. By the time he comes out of World War II, and not least because Hannah Arendt was one of his students and then later really sort of helped him think his way into a, a larger conception of the universe, um, he comes out of the war and starts going, you know, the individual lives in a community. And we've got to figure that out as well. And so his thinking evolves on all kinds of fronts. It's, it's just extraordinary the degree to which he, you know, same concepts, human dignity, but he starts, starts turning it out and going, well, if we're going to have this dignity of the individual, how do we sustain it in communities? How do we make those communities effective? How do those communities defend themselves? How do those communities enrich themselves? Right? If everything we believe in is not going to be crushed, what do you do? And remember, again, these crazy years that he lived, so you see World War I, which was sort of very vexed. World War II, pretty clear, but awful. Then the Cold War, which we sort of forget on our side, if you're in West Germany where he was, the Soviets are just everywhere. And so he's looking at the Soviet Union, and you know, he's anti-totalitarian. He's like, getting rid of Hitler, good. Having Stalin invade, bad. Right? That's not just so he, it's not like he felt, oh, yay, we won, yay, woo. Like, that's the American narrative, right? The American narrative, as we won, the boys came home, whoop. End of story, yay. If you're in Germany, you're like, ah. <laughs> lot of Soviet tanks right there. Like, not a long ways away, like, right there. 
And so they, this fear of like, okay, well, we sort of destroyed everything, but what we've managed to salvage is now under threat. How, how do you respond to that? How do you think that? And so he really started putting a lot of thought into the externalities of the community. What, what's a good political system? What's a good economic system? And once again, because he was such an individual and such an individualistic thinker, he had a tendency to piss everybody off. <laughs> so he's very progressive in some ways, very much constitutional, um, but he also thought reunifying Germany was just crazy. And so, of course, that was the ideal German reunification. He just thought it was this lazy pipe dream. You didn't see why this should be a major. So, so again, he sort of upsets all kinds of people. So everybody recognizes him as being important, but then they kind of get pissed off at him. And again, he wouldn't present a coherent system in the sense of, oh, here's all the answers. Now just everybody go out and do this. His, his idea of a system is a whole series of questions that are hard to think about. It's like, if we all think about this communally, seriously, something right <laughs> and but we're going to get a lot of different answers so how do you make that possible so you know he played with that but it was this huge evolution in his thinking so he wasn't just saying oh i have the answers i have a system everybody else should adapt and grow and change he just constant change constant growth constant adaptation again though this creates the problem so sort of to bring this full circles it's like well why haven't we heard of jaspers you know, he's coherent. His writing is really, really clear, particularly if you read, read any 10 pages of Heidegger and read any 10 pages of Jaspers, and you'll think, I want to read more Jaspers. It's not even close. It's ridiculous. But Heidegger is famous. Hugely important phenomenology and existentialism. But Heidegger's influence is the one that's cited, not the one from Jaspers. Uh, Hannah Arendt was his student, but if you've ever heard anything about Arendt, you always hear about Heidegger, who was sleeping with her until he became an ultra-Nazi and decided he shouldn't sleep with Jews. This put a strain on their relationship. Um, you know, so she went to work with Jaspers because Jaspers was an honorable, upright human being. And she's like, oh, that guy turns out to be really, really an awful person. Um, and I think I want to be with a good person. But now you hear about Heidegger, you don't hear about Jaspers. Jaspers learned from Arendt his entire life. They were in constant correspondence. He, they, went, you know, they had a voluminous ex intellectual exchange that went on for decades. And you don't hear about that. And I think it's because of exactly what, Heide uh, what Jaspers was talking about. What do we love? We love an answer. We don't like answers that come in the form of think about your relationship to an unanswerable question and how that dialogue inside of yourself creates a sense of your being as it moves through time and hence an identity. Like, what the hell? <laughs> that is not an answer to the question of is there or is there not a God? Right? It's, it's frustrating. Um, and so you know, one, his refusal to just give answers. Two, his refusal to adopt a system. If he had said, okay, I'm an existential phenomenologist, and I'm going to found a school, I'm going to have all my students write in that tradition, and I'm going to publish a whole series of books in that tradition, he would be world famous. There's no question about it. Um, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted all of his graduate students to work on their ideas, even when he disagreed with them. He wanted them to be really good at doing the arguments that he didn't like. That was his goal. This is why Arendt comes out of his, his, his classes, his overseeing of her, of her dissertation work, um, very in a position to like then argue him into new positions. He created sort of the person who could then help create him, move him to the next level. If she, he had just said, look, here's my system, you adopt it, you write about it, she would just be a drone. Not that Arendt was going to be a drone, by the way. Um, that, but but, that, but you know, that would be the goal. He never did that. And so his students produced crazy diversity of work. And he produced crazy diversity of work. Um, and his tomes are so friendly and accessible. And it, it's hard to make an exclusive claim to Jasper's works and say, oh, well, you really need this high-level technical education. You need this incredible, phenomenal level of German. 
and all this. Okay, you don't because he says stuff like, look, kids. Uses, you know, often, it's not the only case, but he uses examples like kids. It's like, well, kids say this. Let's ponder that. <laughs> right? he's, he's often not. He has lots of medical knowledge. He brings it in, you know, but he, he's always couched in this very simple, not simple, but very direct and clear fashion, even complex ideas. So that doesn't make him very friendly to academics. Um, and finally, he was, he was sort of a proponent both of the dignity of the individual and of kind of the messy, wishy-washy world of a constitutional democracy. It's like, it's not a utopia. It's not going to be perfect. Hated the plebeian masses. He just didn't like masses of anything under any... So he thought marketing and advertising was just the worst thing to happen. He's like, look, this, this constant inundation of people with marketing and advertising and trying to, to attach their minds to objects. He says, this is... This is a dehumanization as an economic philosophy. And he, was, he, was re he had no use for Marx generally, but he thought, yeah, he's, he's really there on that. So he's one of these people who had no use for Marxism, argued against it, and then one of the central tenets of it, he's like, but that's right. So nobody liked him. The Marxists didn't like him because he's throwing rocks at them, and then the anti-Marxists didn't like him because he's like, look, this, is, this core observation is just true. Let's run with that. Let's think about that. You know, and so, uh, and so the lack of a coherent system and an attempt to promote that system and to run down everybody else's system apparently just wipes you out from history. You know, uh, but I, I hope not. I hope that uh, slowly but surely he'll make his way back. But anytime you hear people complain about, oh, as you may hear recently, that, oh, democracy is not working very well, it's inefficient, it's ineffective, Jaspers would say, yeah, absolutely. Efficiency is not human. It's not a human good. We're not, what, what do we want with efficiency? We want dignity. We want a lot of voices to be heard. Is that efficient? Certainly not. What's efficient is to have one voice and everybody else does what they're told. Yeah, he actually refers to them as ants, right? Just the antification of human beings. But if you don't do that, the ant colony just, some of the ants go drinking and some of the ants go to the beach and some of the ants try to build something that nobody has any use for, right? And it all gets crazy and inefficient. And, and how you deal with that, that, that's the question. You don't try to get rid of it. You don't try to say, oh, let's make this perfect, fluid, you know, effortless system that just works with flaw. He's like, no, that's, A, it's a dream. It's never going to happen. And B is not, it, it, it undermines the human capacity for creation, experimentation, philosophizing, having a free mind. He just, he just thought that was, it couldn't be any clearer. And so that love of the messy, incomplete human world seemed to really set him apart. Um, and, and finally, much of the existentialist philosophy that comes down to us from Sartre and Beauvoir, etc., uh, Heidegger, um, comes in the version of it's a problem, right? It's depressing, it's sad, it's hopeless. And, and Jaspers just kept saying, life is great. Being human and being creative and alive, what a wonderful thing, what a wonderful opportunity. We don't want to squander it. That's from a man who always thought he was about to die. Um, he says, you know, this, this living business is really good. It's, it's a great thing. There's lots to do. It's, it's not awful and horrible and depressing. It's wonderful and should be embraced and celebrated. And it's, it, to, to a certain degree, I just think that pose is almost unacceptable. Right? That, that's, that, that, that sort of tone of his work is just like, well, we can't have that. Right? I, it, for the example, if, if you know, if, if you've ever taken any philosophy courses, you've probably run into the, oh, there's a drunk laying on a train track, and there's a train headed for him, and you have to pull a lever. If you pull the lever, then the train will go off the tracks. No, the, tracks, the train's going to go off the tracks. If you pull a lever, it won't go off the tracks, and everybody on board will be saved, but you're going to run over the drunk on the rails. If you do pull the lever, then you know, you're going to keep it on the tracks and all this, right? And Jasper's, well, okay, that's fine, it's ethical. But really, why, why so terrible? 
He says the, more of the tenor of his thinking is, okay, so you're in an ice cream store. And there's 32 flavors. And you've narrowed it down to six. How does one make the final junction? How does we make that leap to the one? Or do you order three? Or do you just order all six, right? You know, that is the, you know, to, to him, so for just the tenor of so many of his examples and ideas is life is a selection of ice creams, not a drunk laying on a trailer track about to get run over by a train. And, and somehow that just seems wrong, right? That we're not allowed to, 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 to think that way. Um, but I, think, I, I would like to encourage us to think that way because I think it's hugely important. Uh, and a person who continued this sort of thinking and exploration of this, oh, by the way, and, and he lived in this amazingly horrible time, right? So he spent his war years, he was removed from the university, wasn't allowed to teach, wasn't allowed to publish. His wife was Jewish, prominent Jewish family, so it's not like she was secretly Jewish. She was well known to be Jewish. And so uh, always in danger if at any moment she was going to be taken off or both of them because it was actually a crime to be married now. Um, and uh, he was smuggling, helping people get out of Germany. He, themselves, they were going to leave, but then they got trapped after, I forget the date, when they basically closed Germany off. And he says, now we're in a prison. The whole state is a prison camp. You know, and yet, and yet, he still was like, you know, we have this freedom of thought. We have these capacities. We could use them. To not use them undermines the inherent dignity of man, the inherent dignity of us. Um, and, he, and, and that sort of tenor, that message, that core idea, uh, again, like runs counter a lot to what we, I think just as a tone, as a flavor. Um, but he imparted it to the next philosopher I want to talk about, which is Hannah Arendt. Because I think she's often misunderstood, um, in part because she's so closely associated with Heidegger. And it's just sort of like, ah, she, yeah, she was with Heidegger, but then she shifted to Jaspers. And it was Jaspers for the rest of her life, not Heidegger, who had just sort of went off the rails um, with the Nazi business and other problems. And so it's just odd that that association is so powerful when in fact she really did something else entirely. So if you want to think about or read something, Carl Jaspers, I, in philosophy, phenomenology, just thinking generally, I really recommend Jaspers. It's hard to recommend Kant, because holy shit. I mean, really? Uh, and, and Hegel, same problem. I mean, there's some shorter pieces by Hegel you can sort of get your mind around. Schopenhauer, yes, great short essays. World is will and idea, you hold that off. Um, you know, but, but world is will and idea, excellent. I mean, world, his short essays, very nice. You can get your mind around it. Jaspers, he's got stuff there. Very clear, short chapters, short essays, short articles. He was on TV a lot. There's videos of him on YouTube, by the way, wow. uh, with, with subtitles of, of seeing him interviewed. Uh, and he has a, <gasps> you can hear him breathe. You can hear his breathing problems, but, you also see an incredibly coherent, articulate man. It's like a voice from another universe, basically, because <laughs> you realize he was raised in a, in, a, in a world that's lost now, and that they're videotaping him in Germany in 1950s you know, and 60s, and, but he was really not from then, right? He was from a previous century, essentially. Uh, and so it's this amazing voice from the past. So yeah, so definitely, if you're interested at all, I would say check out Carl Jaspers because he's a great and uplifting philosopher, if nothing else. Thank you very much. <laughs>